Hello, I'm Roy Sharples, and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert looking for insights, growing your career, or are you a dear friend helping spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. Imagine if the world was rebooted to its factory settings. Not a hard reboot, where everything was erased, but one that would reset our way of living, allowing us to return to the previous setting and ignore the changes made in recent years. What would you do to reset based on what you've learned from the history of time and do differently if you had no constraints? We currently stand in the midst of a global pandemic. Whilst it has had a devastating effect on the world, it has also shown us that many behaviours and practices we once thought unchangeable can be improved and that many outcomes thought impossible were achievable. Whilst no one would choose a global pandemic to understand what is possible, it has provided us with a temporary cleanse of the modern world and an opportunity to reassess the anachronisms that we've endured, showing these unfit for modern life. I'm joined with Gary Burt to provide a perspective on a people-first manifesto for rebooting the world by discussing how education, public policy, culture, economics, politics and society could be reshaped for the benefit of humanity. If you were president or prime minister, what would you do? I'm not convinced that the change that we see is locked at the moment. I think many of the changes that we've seen, and there have been a lot of a lot of positive changes, we're at risk of having these reversed unless we acknowledge the importance of what the change is and commit to the changes that have been made. So for me, I think what I've seen during COVID is that we've recognised, as you said, a lot of our systems and behaviours are not only unhealthy and sustainable, but are ultimately responsible for many of the problems that we're dealing with. Whether we look at this as a planet, a country, or an individual, a lot of the things that we took as normal aren't working as well as they could. COVID-19 has shown us a lot of problems, it's, but it's also given us this really positive view as what, what is possible. So improve water quality, cleaner air, quieter cities that are a joy to walk around, improve greenery. It's provided a, an opportunity for people to reappraise their lives, which is massively positive, and what is important in these. You know, lockdowns, whilst they were not pleasant, have really highlighted and shown us the importance of exercise, the potential to work from home, at least for a lot of people, and reduce or avoid the commute. We've learned to live without our daily Starbucks here and recognise that a home sandwich can taste great, but at the fraction of the price of a bought one. But these are not fixed. And I think that as we look to learn and move on from COVID, the first thing we need to do is recognise one thing. We have a choice here. Yes, there is potential for change, but I, I, I really fear that this isn't locked. So what is important for today is to, is to be very specific about the desire to want to change. So we've seen what's possible. We've seen systems are broken. The critical thing is here is to embrace the fact that we need to look at what we're doing and start to make some really, really big changes here. And, you know, these can be, these can be 
minor changes, they can be big, but we the one thing we don't want to do, and, and this would be a real lost opportunity, is, is just go back to what we've got to try to fix things, to move to what they were before. That's a massively lost opportunity. In vintage classic style of all politicians, you fulfilled that caricature to a T in that you didn't answer the killer question. I'm going to ask it again, Gary. If you were PM or president, what would you do and what would your blueprint be? (laughs) So, so Gary, how would you fix the world? So I think, so let's flip this around slightly. Let's let's change the question from what we fix to what do we want? No, I'll, I'll answer your question. <laughs> well, what is it that we want? What is it that we, we want society to be? And, you know, for me, I, I looked at this and I could write long, long words and essays on this, but I, I think it's really simple. I think, you know, to make it as simple as possible, I think it's about having a human first society. Yeah. And what I mean by that is a sustainable human first which is going, it's, it's recognizing the importance of all people. And this isn't some hippie ideal. Let me explain. It means that, look, the, the systems, the societies, the processes, the whole way of living that we have today isn't working for a huge number of people. So let's forget the reasons why, but it really isn't working. So if I wanted to, you know, I'm, I'm the, I'm the president, I'm the prime minister. What's the first thing I'd start to do is to start to be very clear about saying, if we want to fix some of these things, we don't need to do them in a piecemeal manner. It won't work. What we need to do is start to have this very fundamental conversation about as a society, as a group of people, as a country, as a, as a, as a a set of nations, as a world, what is it that we want? So putting, you know, having a statement of human first means that we're starting with a respect for each other and a, and, and a respect for the environment. This has massive implications though, but the benefits could be huge for what we're living. I mean, you mentioned education. This is, this is core in so many ways to this because it's probably the one area that if we got the reinvention of education right, it would have the biggest payback in terms of, future changes for everybody. So how do how does this start to play out? So you know, how do we how do we start to move forward with this? Right. So starting with human first, if we're saying that this is about um putting people first above everything. So let's forget the 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 def, the, the challenges of how we do this. We start with putting people first. That means above anything that we recognize the value, the importance and the respect of equality. It means a fair world. It means it has to be proportional. And that's not about some hippie ideal of saying we all need to be the same amount. It isn't communism. It isn't socialism. What it's doing is taking a step above these political labels and saying, let's start with some basics. Society should seek equality. Now, equality doesn't mean everybody has to earn the same amount. It doesn't mean that some people, you know, everybody has the right to um, to uh, be paid for not working. It doesn't mean to say that if you work hard, you can't become rich and have the benefits of doing that. What it's saying, though, is we need to have a, a common playing field. We need to recognize that, that there's a set of benefits. There's a set of outcomes that we want everybody to be able to access. It means that we want everybody to be able to have secure 
safe housing. We want everybody to be able to go to school and not be penalised for going to school or loaded with huge debts for going to school. We want to have access to healthcare. Now, none of these I'm saying, I'm, I'm mandating the way we need to do those. But what we're doing is we're trying to go back from arguing about, is it system A or system B, to look at some very simple things that we can agree on as a group of people, a, a group of you know, a, a, a group of individuals, a group of families, a group of cultures. So what we're doing is we're looking to say that if we want to look at the future, we have to gr- agree not on the how we do things, but on the very fundamental core of what we want to achieve at a human level. And this is this is what we need to tie back to. So we tie back to we want to have, and what you do is you define a set of attributes that you aim to achieve. And these need to be reasonably atomic. They need to be as simple as they can be, you know, in the words of Einstein, as simple as they could be, but no simpler. They need to be um, definitions that don't allow interpretation, that are very clear, that are very simple. Then the second part, once you've done that, and that could be the right to, and we can start to list those, you know, the right to live without pollution, the right to live without fear the right to have um, housing, the right to go to school, the right to education, the right to be in control of what I do to my body. So once we can agree these, the next thing we need to do is to start to prioritise them because there are going to be trade-offs here. We need to then start to prioritise what is important. You know, is education more important than defence? Now, at the end of the day, we're going to have some level of balancing, but we need to make sure that what we don't do is we don't start to prioritise the needs of one individual group above another. Now, how would how you think how this should play out? So what the goal of what you're seeking is, is incredibly high level, but it's incredibly desirable as well. So what you're seeking to define is a society where everyone can ultimately be happy, be fulfilled but also be able to maximise their potential. And this bit is really, really important because at the moment, I think as an, as a country, when, you know, and I don't just mean the UK, I probably mean in many, many countries, we are massively underperforming in terms of reaching the potential of everybody. Is everybody doing the job that they would love to do? Is everybody doing working at the way that they feel best able to contribute to society? And you think, well, Gary, you're being a complete idealist. I am. And that's the point, that we should be seeking the ideal. We shouldn't be locking into processes that aren't working. So if you take if you take the idea of education and we think about how education works. So in you know the US and the UK have quite similar systems in the sense of there's a public system and a, a private system. So we know that the system that you pay for delivers better outcomes. You know, we can argue about that. It's a fact. It does. The stats aren't equivalent. That doesn't mean to say that people going through the state system don't have great results. They do. But when we look at how those education systems place people and how they, um, you know, where the top jobs are sourced from, regardless of results, we'll see a bias. So, so we're actually starting to say we need to have a system that's more equitable. That doesn't mean to say you can't pay. It just means that we need to not only not cap the paid for system, we need to raise the state system so the the um, 
the outcomes from the state system are as good as the private system. And that's going to start apart from anything else with money, but also value. So you're you're valuing those outcomes. We we then follow that through. So we go through the schools and we look for equality of um, education. We then come to look at university. Now, again, UK and the US have similar systems that you pay to go to university. You pay a big big amount of money. So in the UK, that recently tripled. It's not as expensive as the US system for uh, most places, and we do have caps. But this is this is loading families with these huge bills. So in the UK, the way it works is um, when students go to university, most students are able to get state-funded loans that will later be repaid from taxes once they reach above a certain amount. But when you add in the living loans or living costs onto those you're you know you can have students coming out with you know um 50 50 000 pound bills you know in the us it could be much higher you know the cost of a medical degree is is huge so what you have is not only are people coming out of university with these huge debts but you also have this limitation on people going into the system that unless you're comfortable with coming out with that huge debt, and let's be really honest about this, which means that in many cases, unless your family is going to help you out with those debts, for many people, those routes are not as open as they first appeal, they first appear. So what you're going to have is, is routes that instead of having the best person, the best person qualified on a whole range of um, reasons, a whole range of measurements to become the best doctor. We have the people who are, who want to become doctors, but also are comfortable with taking on the debt and the ability to live through that period. I don't think that's desirable because although we think we're getting the best doctors, we're not. We are, we are selecting out a lot of people who could become doctors yeah. who won't or can't because they either can't fund themselves through university or they don't want to live with that level of debt. The second thing is, we're locking people into careers. So if you come out with um, a huge debt and you've trained as um, um, a geologist, you're going to be focused only on becoming a geologist to be able to repay that debt if you become a doctor. So what this does is this ties people into single life streams. Now we we know that not only that people change jobs and that's going to increase, but also people don't always know at 19 and 18 what they want to do in the rest of their life. So what the downside at a human level of these huge debts is they actually lock in the um, the future direction for people. This is not a great system. Now, I'm not saying that, of course, not everybody can become a doctor, but ultimately everyone should have the potential to become a doctor. No, it shouldn't be about the ability to fund yourself through education. And the reason why this is critical isn't just around doctors and dentists and lawyers, although we know that, you know, when we start to focus on um, focus on large debt, it pulls people towards high paying salaries and they start to get, you know, locked into um, careers that maybe they don't love, but it's going to be the best paid. But the other side is these become disincentives to creativity as well. Because if you're going to end up with a, a big debt, that that could take you towards a career that doesn't necessarily have the great payout. So yeah. if you're going to have a big debt and you're going to become a lawyer, the chances are you're going to earn enough to, to pay that debt off. The same as a doctor, the same as a dentist, same as a merchant banker. If you want to become an artist or a teacher, 
that becomes a lot more challenging. So what we do is we provide, we're building a system that incentivizes people to chase money rather than to chase necessarily what they love or what they're good at or what they really enjoy. And, you know, whilst we can't and shouldn't aim to make all of the jobs the same. So an artist, you know, unless you're very, very good, is typically, and a teacher is going to get paid less than a doctor. But what we can do is we can make it so at least when they start those careers, at least when they come out of university, they're not saddled with the debt, which becomes economic and employment handcuffs for the future. Imagine a value system within a society that evaluated people on the value of the currency of their data and their contribution to humanity, which eradicates hierarchy and class and creates a plain level field that is meritocratic and pushes individuals to unlock their artistry and personal drive for excellence. It's down to the individual on how far they want to go. Now, I know that sounds more utopian. Of course, utopian societies are likely impossible to achieve because different cultures and people will have different happiness ideas leading to competition and war. However, the real world can develop towards progress and justice because utopia provides an idealised model to point out the real world's weaknesses and to challenge its reality. No, I completely agree. And this, you know, when we look back at leaders, whether in the UK or um, America, yeah. France, Germany, the leaders that we that we um, resonate with, the leaders that we most respect are the ones with the, that were the most visionary. Yeah. You know, if we look at which leaders have done the most to improve the, the state of the country, we don't talk about the ones who've necessarily had the biggest economic effect. We talk about the ones who put people first. Yes. You know, so in the UK, you know, you could, you know, Churchill, a great leader. What was he doing? He, his, if you, you know, the, most, the kindest view of seeing it, was he perfect? Absolutely not. But his sole drive was to maintain freedom, was to maintain the standard, was to maintain freedom for the UK and the Commonwealth. It was about challenging evil. It's yeah. incredibly simple. You know, we then look at, you know, the leaders after this and we saw, you know, why were they lauded? Well, because they said, if we look at, um, you know, not just prime ministers, but also leaders such as uh, Noru uh, Bevin, um, and, you know, as who established in the UK, the NHS, yeah. you know, recognised as a fantastic leader. You look at the um, US, you look at JFK, um, and what you see is, is the whole point is the leaders who are respected are the ones who are putting their big, bold goals on the table and challenging the naysayers. Because yeah. it's, you know, if you look back through history, you think, well, the, the NHS is, is a great idea. It wasn't universally supported. There were a lot of people who go, no, we don't want to give everybody free health care. So the idea that this was com completely backed by everybody and we did it and, and it just zoomed through, that wasn't the case. You had people challenging this. Yeah, exactly. So the, the idea that we can have a view of the future and everyone loves it, no, but what you need is the the leadership to be able yeah. to stand up for this and set the standard. And ironically, knowing that in many cases you're not going to do it, but by setting that goal, you're going to move them further forward than they would have done originally. And I think this is the point. And perhaps for me, this is the frustration at the moment. 
that when we fail to do that, what we're doing is we're locking our mindset into accepting the problems that we have. So if you wanted to, you know, so what would you do? I'd start to encourage this bold thinking about what is possible, not because all of it is possible, but because by doing that, we start to stretch the boundaries and we start to challenge those assumptions that we're working in today. Because when you reframe the problem, what you start to do is uncover the solutions to those. I'll give you a really good example of this around education. So in the UK, um, if you go to education, you, you'll end up with, at the moment, about a 27, you know, three years, 9,000, 9,000 a year, 20, 27, 28,000 um, pounds worth of debt in for three-year course. In the US, you could, it, it, you know, anything from $10,000 a year upwards, huge yeah. numbers. And we said, well, well, it's surely the only way is that the people experiencing the education have to pay for it. Well, it isn't the only way. Because if we look at Europe, the cost of education is massively lower. Why? Because governments have decided it's a really good thing that everybody, as far as possible, has access to a higher level of education. That doesn't mean everybody has to go to university. There's a range of choices. There's a range of learning options. But it means that as a society, we value people being educated to a higher level, not just because of the jobs, but because we become more intelligent more um, better people. We become a better society. We become, we, we build our ability to learn for longer so we become better at it. And apart from anything else, we have many more trained people. So you then compare, you then take that to the extreme and you have Scandinavian countries where the, the cost of education is free. So in the UK, you don't come out of university with a, a 23 odd thousand pound bill or in the US you don't come out with a hundred and fifty thousand dollar bill you you don't come out with the bill and you go okay well, that's a brilliant system but ah socialist that means our taxes have to rise well let's reframe that as a parent either me or my children are going to be paying you know thousands in education now start to add on the interest on that whether that's taking um, it, saving up in advance. So the money I don't get to spend now because I'm saving up or the money that they pay because those, those loans and um, student loans are not free. They're, they're, they're charged at a, a level of interest that, you know, a few years ago was cheap, but they haven't dropped in line with the cost of uh, borrowing. So they're now relatively very expensive loans. So go, well, ah, well, that's, that's right. Well, think of this another way. Instead of what we're talking about is just shifting the way that you pay. So instead of paying this huge bill that either you save for for 20 years, you know, 18 years from your children being born or 20 years after they finish their course to pay those bills off, we simply put it into taxation. So we got, oh, taxation needs to rise. Yes, but you're not paying any more because you're not paying these bills. And for many people, Government borrowing is going to be cheaper than any bank. Any economist will tell you that. A government can borrow money cheaper than a bank. So what you've got is you have the ability to fund the systems, but you do it in a different way. And it does it in a way that balances this out. Now, the challenge comes in, of course, it takes a generation to work through this because, you know, well, I didn't go to university, so why should I pay? Well, you should pay because it's a good idea. It's great to have more doctors. It's great to have more geologists. It's great to have more artists go through university. 
And and when we start to hear these issues, these these dialogues about, oh, well, that means taxes rise. You just want to tax. No, no, we don't. You're paying the same amount. You're just paying it in a different way. So, you know, we need to move this debate on from talking about these polarised views to what the outcome is. And this is why it's really important to start with the view of what is it you want to achieve? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a great, you know, it isn't great. I mean, the other point is the goal here is not to have, the, the goal here is not to be exclusive. It's not to stop people excelling. It's to allow as many people to excel as possible. And the benefit of that isn't that you can't have your yacht. It isn't that you don't have your big house. The difference is that the person down the road is living in a house and not a shack or unhomed. This is the difference. It's meaning that you're having you're having the ability for everybody, regardless of their income, regardless of their past, regardless of what their parents earn, able to have this ladder to improvement. Yeah. And that that just simply doesn't exist if there is a huge bill attached to that. And and I think I think perhaps if you know if you don't think there is if don't if you don't think a huge bill, a huge debt is a disincentive, then great, because you're on the other side of that. You're not having to worry about money. If if you've brought up it been brought up in an environment where, you know, um debt, bailiffs, insecurity, food poverty is normal, that's not something that you're going to run towards as a student, believe me. They're really not. And you know, I've been fortunate, I've been lucky, of course I've worked hard, but I hopefully I'm not that isolated enough to see that this is this is not a very real problem so i think if we want to invent society it has to start with education and you know we don't have to do this overnight we can evolve to this but we do need to get to the point whereby as a as a country as a society we are saying that we will protect you we will provide this ability for you to be the best you it's not going to happen it's not going to be there forever you know, we do expect you when you come out of university, when you, you know, to work, you know, we're not, we're not, I'm not arguing that we should be allowing people to never work. I'm not arguing that we shouldn't allow people to be successful. I'm not arguing that we don't allow people to earn more money as they work harder and to be able to benefit their lives. What I'm arguing about, what my, the point of my argument is about as far as possible, this should be open to everybody, not just a few. Now, those changes, the changes that we realise from this won't happen overnight. But over a generation, the benefits become huge. Because what you start to have is you start to have a better informed society. You have a better educated society. You have a society that has more freedom, more freedom to create, more freedom to help. So I come out of, I come out of university and I've got my geology degree. Well, if I've got my £30,000 of debt, the one thing I can't do is go and be a carer because I've got to pay my debt back. Yeah. So you come out and you go, well, I've done this. Well, I want to change. Well, hang on. At that point, you're only 21. You've got 40, 50 years of working life left. Okay, so go and change. What's the downside? Uh, some more yeah. money on education. So you have a, an appreciation of geology and you can become a nurse. This, this isn't a negative. We focus on the cost of this, not on the benefit. So I think what we need to do is have the discussion that focuses on what the positives of this are going to be yeah. and then how we do that. 
Your point about the importance of leadership is crucial. Yes, we have been graced with unprecedented greatness throughout time. Mahatma Gandhi and also Martin Luther King Jr. practiced non-violent approaches to influence resistance to global movements, yet still stands to this day. Nelson Mandela raged against the apartheid regime to remove racism and eradicate poverty and inequality in South Africa. He defined all odds to become Prime Minister. They stood for purpose, reason and conviction to see their policies through with resilience and grit, with the sole intent of making humanity better. They did things differently that had never been done before by rejecting failure and swimming against the tide in extreme adverse oceans of time to break through the frontiers, to provide novel solutions to complex societal problems that then became a, a new culture and norm and way of life. Sadly, authentic leaders are not compelled to politics in modern times. They tend to gravitate towards the humanities, the arts, technology, entrepreneurship and business. There may be monetary reasons for this, though I think a fundamental issue is their lack of trust and exhaustion of the political systems that are designed for the old economy and world, not the modern world. Coupled with the ethics and incompetence of people leading countries who do not have the empathy, skills and experience to lead, it's time to reinvent politics and the types of leaders that need to be at the helm of pushing society forward for the greater good. Our outputs are the next generation's inputs. The children of this revolution are the new canvas on which the actual values of this revolution will be imposed and materialised. This comes with accountability and responsibility to pass on the baton, leaving the world in a better place. The next generation tend to have been nurtured by parents who didn't want to make the mistakes of the previous generation. They are socially conscious, self-confident, achievement-oriented, ambitious and technologically sophisticated. They're inquisitive and make themselves aware to where businesses invest their money and how they contribute to society, as well as what they actually make and sell, coupled with a strong rejection to accept that things have always been done this way, are driven to find alternative solutions that fit the present needs. I couldn't agree more. I think a couple of things come to mind from what you've said. So I guess personally, I have a huge amount of faith in young people. You know, the, the, the criticism of young people as not being like the older generation goes back yeah. as long as human history. You know, you've got quotations from, you know, Roman times, Greek times about the lack of respect for young people, for the old people. It wasn't true then. It isn't true now. So, you know, I guess to pick a couple of examples of this, when we, we criticize, you know, we see politicians, the worst of the politicians, criticizing young people for caring about the environment. Yeah. Let's just take a step back and think about that. So we have somebody who's young, whose future is ahead of them, passionately caring about the world that they're going to live in. That is a, an amazingly brilliant behavior yeah. to be lauded. They, you know, we have politicians 
you know, complaining about demonstrators who are demonstrating for clean water, for access to housing, for an end of violence. Well done. You know, this isn't a reflection on young people failing. It's a reflection on politicians failing. Yeah. You know, the politicians here should be setting the goal. This isn't an... I guess, you know, we're, we're going to go out, we'll have UK listeners and um, American listeners. This isn't a political view. It's not left or right. You know, having having a, a clean environment, having clean water isn't, isn't a political question. You could argue it's political in the sense of somebody cares. It's not. It's a human issue. How you get the environment yeah. clean, how you maintain that is a, perhaps a political question. But having clean water isn't a political perspective. It's a human one. And this is why, you know, one of the criticisms I have about the left-right politics that we've seen, and the UK is really similar to the US in that we've seen this polarisation, is that we've seen one side, often the left at the moment, cede some of these points to the right. Well, there's, you know, the idea that people want to be successful and earn money shouldn't be ceded to just the right. It's not, it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be. Um, it doesn't have to be only owned by one party. It can be owned by both. But the cost of being successful doesn't have to mean the destruction of the environment. You know, economic success doesn't have to mean that you throw environmental protections under the water, uh, under the you know, under the cash. It doesn't mean to say that you lose worker protections. These we, we're being dragged into the idea that we have these these di- these extremely opposite dichotomies it's a or b you can have economic growth and yeah the environment can't be good we have to allow pollution or we can have or we can have um clean environment but that means that we can't be successful no one's going to get rich but we'll have a you know clean rivers this is absolute bs it really is so you know the first thing is that if we start to again start with the human then go okay so we want clean environments we want clean water we want accessible housing that then moves to the discussion of how do we how do we source this how do we fund this so that can be privately funded it can be government built it can be done through cops there's a whole range of options of how but let's not lock the how with the what and the why because you know that way you know if we look in the the US we've seen a lot of the environmental protections reduced they do not need to be reduced to have success what we need to do is reward the right behaviors to achieve those so rather than you know give um tax credits to organizations that are polluting because they're producing economic growth give the tax credits to the green organizations that are going to deliver the solutions and the growth because that's what's going to attract that's what's going to attract the best people to solve those problems you know in the UK, we've, we've had, um, you know, I guess flipping this, let, let's flip it to one real positive. One of the real positives about what COVID has brought us is there's a lot of negatives. But one of the positives, it's brought us perhaps the confidence that when we throw resources at a problem, when something really matters, like a vaccine, we can collaborate internationally. We can do we can work in a time scale that is a um that is it's absolutely mind-blowing and previously impossible you know i look at the news today and we've got several vaccines that are about to finish clinical trials that have delivered in 10 months what previously took a minimum of 10 years 
And these have been done across multiple countries. This is what's possible. It's a pity that it's taken COVID and it's taken a huge amount of debt for us to have those outcomes. But this should be a really positive lesson in what is possible when we start to have very clear goals of what the outcomes are and very clear focus on prioritizing the resources to make those happen. So, you know, again, we come back to education, but it applies in so many other areas. A lot of the problems that we see, a lot of the problems that we have are absolutely solvable. What we need to do is be very clear about what is the goal we want to achieve and then put the resources into the prioritizing that goal to happen. When we start to do that, you know, we start to smash down the barriers and we start to challenge the mindsets, which, you know, to be honest, have held us back for years. Looking forward, what should then be some of the jobs of the future that should be created? Instead of saying, what are the jobs that will be created? Let's look at the attributes of the people that we want to come out of education. So, you know, let's say, you know, one of the challenges we have in the UK that I have have a real issue with is that we, the way that you, I know about the US system, but I'll speak about the UK system. So typically you go into, you come out of a um, school at 11, a primary school, you come out at 11 and you will go to um, set what are called secondary schools or high schools. You know, there is some specialization in those. So some of them focus on languages, some on maths. So again, we're starting to see that first level of selection that first level of narrowing of options. When you get to 14, you reduce your choices for exams from perhaps 12 subjects that you're learning to possibly 10 that you're going to focus on. So typically you'll have to take English, maths, a science and a language or a humanities. And, and, you know, you then have a choice depending on what the school offers. So at that point, you're then even at 14 going to specialise. So you might go, well, I want to do geography, history, and French, and I'll take a general science. So by 16, what you've done, you've already closed so many of your opportunities because you come to 16, you you do what's called A-level. So between 17 and 18, you take essentially um, between two and four advanced level qualifications. So again, you're specializing further. So it started at 11, perhaps. It's certainly it's certainly narrowed at 14. It's narrowed at 16, because at this point, you're going to have to choose, make these big life choices, whether you want to go into humanities, whether you want to go into science, whether you want to go into maths. Because when you get to 18, your entry into university is to a very specific degree. You, in the UK, you, the, um, uh, the concept of majors and minors is largely, no, it's typically a single subject degree. You may have um, you know, business with French, but what you don't, you're not going to have business with geology. You, no. you can't mix them up in that way. So what you've got is you've got an education system that's that's taken people from as early as 11, but certainly 14 and reduced options. This is madness. That's not how the human mind works. You might have an interest in science at 14 that's really deep, but you might also start to love art and architecture at 18. Yeah. And you know what? If you start to realize that at 17, you can't, your options are so limited. What you essentially have to do is you have to rewind the qualification. So I think some of the practical things that we can do around education are start to say, we, we reduce the specialization. Our goal should be, and this is where to answer your question, what, what is it that we want to do? We want to produce 
a range of learning. We want to provide flexibility. We want to embrace critical learning. We want to embrace people zigzagging in their learning. We want to embrace a wide palette. So instead of degrees being focused on, you know, coming out as an expert at 21, perhaps we need to rethink this and say, well, the goal should be as far as possible to keep this generalized. People will have a choice, but that's not going to lock in their future careers. So this means that we then need to rethink how we do university education. So instead of university education for um, a doctor uh, requiring, you know, three sciences, perhaps we say, well, we're going to allow, we're going to support much more of the concept of foundation years. So we will look at what you've done over your career, that you've taken a subject, that you've proven you can learn, that you've proven that you can deal with the pressure of what a medical degree will do, but we will help you from wherever you are at 18 to get through this. And I think this is a really fundamental shift because what you've got is you don't have a load of niche experts at 21. You should aim to have a people that as far as possible didn't specialize. And if they did want to change, they can. So yeah. what, what stops people changing degrees? Well, it's increased cost. If I go two years down my geology degree and go, do you know what? Really hate geology. I, I want to be a dancer. Well, yeah. here's your choice. You can throw the two years away, you know, metaphorically throw those two years away. You want to become the dancer. Okay. That's an additional three years. So instead of three years, you're paying five years of education to shift. And what and typically we don't recognize the years that you've done. So, yeah. you know, you reset. Well, if you start to, if you start to remove the cost of this and say, the goal is that we want people. So you come out as a, as a, a you've done your um, creative arts degree. You come out, well, you did two years as learning as a geology. That's not lost. The fact that you aren't a geologist doesn't mean to say that that yeah. value is absolutely zero. You understand a whole range of things. You're able to engage in society better because you understand this. You're able to comment with authority. You might be able to help out and help teach other people. And I think, again, it's a big mindset shift. So the biggest shift I would make is to focus on removing the specialization as early as we do. Yeah. Secondly, um, I would focus on a much more blended approach to learning. So, you know, we have a very... Um, a very um, teach to model, certainly in the UK, that's come from a Victorian model. Let's evolve this. The way we teach is not the way we learn. The way we teach children today in the UK and the US and in most country, most countries echoes back to a model that was designed and it was designed for Victorian times to provide one of two routes. Um, it was either designed to provide you with a professional qualification, if you could afford it, or it was designed to provide you with the skills to be able to useful as a, as a productive unit, essentially yeah. a factory worker. Factory worker that's, yeah. the, that's evolved, yeah. but that was the Victorian model. You know, if you came from a wealthy family, you could become a doctor, a lawyer, and go into a professional practice. If you didn't, your education was purely there to, to give you the skills to, to go and work it's a human resource, you know, whether that was in a factory or in an office or, you know, a whole range of jobs, but it wasn't to be a creative human. So what's the change that we're looking for? We started this by saying it was about human first. 
And that's exactly what we want with education, to recognize the value of the human, not only to choose, but to contribute, to create. You know, so your job, the, the, the job of school isn't to teach. It's to inspire. It's not to tell you what happened. It's to enthuse you to want to embrace and learn that. And I, that, I think, you know, even more fundamentally, we need to have a really good look at the curriculum and what is the purpose of teaching us. You know, there's a, I, I listened to an audio book um, the other day by it's a former Special Forces soldier. And um, so he's called Jay Morton. The book's called Soldier. And, you know, he's he's not he's not old, but he did four years in the parachute regiment and then 10 years in the special air service so equivalent of seals or green berets yeah. really elite tier one operations you know when he talks about the fact that at school he clearly wasn't labeled as particularly intelligent he certainly wasn't labeled as creative he wasn't labeled as hard working that's a failure of the school to inspire but clearly to become a tier one operator to join one of the most elite units in the world he is absolutely creative he is a brilliant thinker he is an incredibly disciplined person. And I think the point of this is we're not allowing people to discover this. We're not embracing this diversity, this ability that everybody has this huge potential in them. What we're doing is we're telling them, for the most part, that there is a particular route through this. And if you don't do that, then you'll fail. Um, and if you don't master these subjects, then you're not going to be successful. But we need to look really harsh at what this, what we need to teach. So yes, we do need to teach maths. That's that's pretty important. But it needs to be applied and relevant to people. We need to teach English. But does that mean that we need to teach people about um, Shakespeare? That we need to teach them classic text? Or instead, do we start to teach them to learn about bias? To learn about what great writing is? To learn how to be, how to express themselves? We talk about history. And, you know, we teach people about in the UK standard curriculum, the national curriculum includes, you know, time on the Romans and the Tudors. But we don't teach about the slave trade. We don't teach yeah. about oppression. We don't teach about South Africa we, and, and the positive outcomes that are possible. You know, we don't teach about some of the conflicts that we've been in. And that's, you know, that's not to say they were good or bad. It's to teach really important human values and human learnings from those things. So I think we do need to make some really big changes, but let's let's play this forward 20 years and see what those changes could deliver. So let's imagine, you know, Gary, God of the world, uh, prime minister, president, it, and it'll take a while to do this. So first of all, we've eradicated student debt. We've started to raise the profile and the pay of teachers and we're funding this. And, and this is this is this is not going to be painless in terms of cost, but we're funding this so schools are attracting the very best people with the best with enough resources to to um, be successful. But we're then building a curriculum that children want to learn. We're making it relevant. We're using technology. We're using the benefits of being able to show lectures from the very best. Um, tutors around the world and make those available. We're starting to we're starting to provide access to technology, so it's not a divisive um, field. It's available to everybody. We're providing the ability for you to go into education, to move around, to zigzag, to recognise 
just as a children, just as children enjoy sport at seven, they may hate it by nine. <laughs> they zigzag all over the place. If you're a parent and you've got a kid, you know, the one thing you know is they're going to love a sport. They're going to be absolutely loving it. And then you buy them all the kit and then they've lost interest. They don't enjoy it anymore. And you're lost with the kit. That's fantastic because that's how humans work. That's how we're supposed to learn. We shouldn't discourage that. We should embrace it. So embrace the fact that we want to learn. We want to zigzag. We're going to experience things and embed that into the education system. So allow that freedom of movement, allow that zigzagging. You know, there's an irony here, isn't there? That one of the most successful innovators that we have, the founder of one of the biggest computer companies, um, Steve Jobs with Apple, you know, credits his arts degree, his love of calligraphy, his love of drugs and the and actually the the embracing of drugs and the freedom that that could bring him to understand what was possible to be able to create and drive the demand for operating systems that brought that to life you know this is this is a fantastic thing you know i'm not i'm not saying we support drugs but what i'm saying is we support the opening of minds yeah. and we should be encouraging those experiences so what we let's play this through we're starting to do this we've got education system that's engaging we're respecting teachers we've we don't have a problem with truancy why because we're we're providing schools that are really great fun to go to you know, let, let's flip this around and, and start to sort of challenge these things. Instead of instead of Mrs. Miggins, the chemistry teacher, having to do, um, you know, sports class or, you know, someone, to be honest, you know, a really failed, I'm going to be really rude here, but a failed teacher sending the kids running around the park, <laughs> running around the field. What we do is we put sports scientists into schools who yeah. can understand and help children understand their bodies. Exactly. Understand that understand that there is a way to teach this that helps you be successful. That perhaps says we want a route for our great athletes to be able to go back into education and share that experience, to talk about what it was like to win an Olympic gold, to pay an athlete. To, imagine, imagine we're going to say that the, if you've won a, a medal, there is an option for you once you, once you, you know, you can train as a teacher, but there's an option for you that we will pay you to be in the school system so you can keep sharing your story and inspiring, yeah. not as a one-off because the expensive school can afford the teaching fees, but because we're rewarding that as a behaviour. So, you know, we're encouraging these blurring of lines. We're encouraging a completely different mindset. We're putting the very best skills back into the time when it's really important in education. You know, who did you see at school? Um, I saw uh, Mo Farah talk about his life and talk about training hard. You know, believe me, those stories are going to do more good than anything else we could ever teach them. You know, start to talk about stories, start to build those experiences. But let's keep let's wind that story forward. We go into education. You can go to university to do what you want. Yes, you know, doctors are going to earn more than um, painters for the most part, um, we know that doctors are going to earn more than teachers and we need to close that gap. But, you know, there is a differential in jobs and that's going to remain. But people can go and do a job 
and going learn about a profession, knowing that if they want to change, that option is open to them. And as a society, we welcome them moving forward. Now, I'm not saying I've got friends who've done this, who've stayed at university for years and years when it was free. They, when they, obviously, they can't do it now because they end up with big bills. But when there wasn't a cost, they spent a long time in university. And what are those people now? They're some of the smartest people I know. They had no idea what they wanted to do, but these are now polymaths. They've got three or four degrees. They are the people that are really the smartest of the smart because they didn't know what they wanted to do because they zigzagged around. So they have a degree in psychology and geology and one in sports science. Why? And what this is what you get that we, when you start to remove the, the barriers to education. So what do you get? What do you come out with? Well, you come out with, and you come out with people who loved learning, students who loved learning. You come out without groups that have selected to come out of education because they felt that it wasn't for them. Why? Because we recognise education is important, and we're actually supporting the learning at a human level. So we're doing whatever we can to keep everybody engaged. And if we can't, we're working with them to see what other opportunities they have to learn, which could mean they go into a job earlier, but we're going to support that education. We have, we have a group of people, we have a population that as they start to enter their twenties, they're free to go to the career that they want with, with the, 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 the debt slate, the debt slate wiped clear. I think it's, it's probably if anyone's, you know, if you're older and you don't have that debt, imagine, imagine it at a personal level. So you're in your forties, right? And we go right. We're going to wipe your, we're going to wipe your um, mortgage. Why? Yeah. To give you more freedom in life. Yeah. This is what we would do, and we say if you want to travel, you want to go around. Great, that experience is fantastic. Come back and make the world a better place. So we then start to have a we we have an education system that goes. Okay, I'm 32. I've worked as, I've trained as a plumber. I want to be a doctor and vice versa. You can. You know, the fact that you didn't do science when you were 14 should not be a a boundary to this. Yeah. You know, we should be opening this up. You know, know, if we we have a demand for this, why would we not want to have more universities training more doctors? Yes, there's a cost, but the outcome of this is more doctors who want to be doctors, not there for the money. They're there because they want to change their lives to become doctors. You know, we have a group of people who understand about how to read media that have done many, many things. So they know what they love and they've had chance to find those passions. They're able to debate. They've had time learning with a whole range of different people. We, Because they can choose where they want to go, they can move perhaps between universities. This, there aren't, you know, the only downside to this is cost. And it's then a case of prioritizing that and not seeing it as a bill, but seeing it as an investment. So why is this important? Well, because the one thing we don't have is a society that understands what it's going to be. So you said, what jobs should we have? I have no idea. I have no idea what jobs are going to be in 10 years. I can make a guess and I'll be wrong. But if I wanted to solve that problem, What I would want is intelligent, self-learners who are happy, who feel secure, who respect the environment, who respect each other, able to retrain and adapt. That's, you know, they're not fearful. We have a nation that of, of people who have the freedom to be able to learn and adapt. 
So how do you build a society for the future? That's how you do it. You, you start really young with the values that you want to embed. It will take a while to come through, but, you know, you look at the, the future of what that will deliver. You know, look at look at what we have to do. There's a, we have people without housing. We have people without food. We have people with poor levels of education. These are the things that we want to change. It's yeah. about putting people first. The core spine of humanity's skill set isn't so much about specialism at all. It's about adapting skills around good judgment, good decision-making, self-expression, feeling safe, feeling secure, being emotionally and socially intelligent, critical thinking, problem solving, and then ultimately the umbrella um, above that all this falls under is the creative and innovative kind of mindset. And then all of that combined gives the, each human the ingredient to, to live a fulfilled, enriched, happy life, which then transcends to like a happy and fulfilled, innovative society. Education is the linchpin of society. It is. Of, of yeah. our future. Yeah. And why, you know, the changes, that, the, the problems that we have in education become the problems for the future. They multiply. So instead of, you know, what we, what, in, so what we have at the moment is an education system that becomes a multiplier of problems when it should be a multiplier of solutions. It's fundamentally broken. It's, you know, it really is. Um, and that's not to say that teachers aren't doing a great job. But, you know, I was thinking before about what you said about leaders. So let, let's let's think about the, the best leaders of all time. Every one of them did something for humanity. Yeah, they did. That it's, was a it's all about humans. It's it's not it's not about building a great train system, having a great economy. The ones that we remember, the values, the ones that we value, are the ones that put humans first, yeah. that put people first. Yeah. You know, Nelson Mandela, um, Martin Luther King, King. Gandhi, yeah. Martin Luther King. It's about putting humans first. Yeah. So I mean, there's a real lesson here. You know that politicians. You know, mentioned you mentioned before about politicians. I mean, so many. Let's be honest about this. So many are really failing, because you know when you start to talk about a group of people, a, a, a subgroup, in the sense, a subset of people, not a subgroup, a subset, you're excluding everybody who's not in that group. We want to help this group. Okay, that's a small group. Why not everybody? You know, and I think this is a really big, a really big shift, but. You know, when I see it is really despairing when I see politicians defend policies which just defy any level of logic. When I see a politician criticize a 16 or a 17 year old girl because she doesn't think we should have we should we should not reduce our emissions. So take a step back from that. Reducing the emissions is is one thing, but there's a higher level objective here, which is to have a um a clean environment. Yeah. You see a politician criticizing the fact that we want a clean environment. That's, that's about as broken as it can be. Yeah. You might not agree with some of the measures and, you know, I've, I've, you know, flown quite a lot in my time. So I'm not without, not without a responsibility here, but again, we, what we need to do is we need to separate the, the, what we want to achieve from how we want to achieve it.
So, and this, you know, let, let's take a, a, re, a real, you know, a thorny issue. So, you know, flying to warm countries is great. So instead of, you know, we don't want to penalise this. We don't want to stop it because travelling is a great thing. We recognise that. So why are we not innovating in making planes massively more successful? Yeah. You know, at the moment we subsidise fuel. Well, let's subsidise and put huge amounts of effort into engine technologies. So massively more efficient engines. Yeah. Um, you know, of course it's possible. You know, you look back. I mean, the, the aeroplane itself is, is not much more than 100, maybe 120, 130 years old. Yeah. Is it possible to make radically better engines? Yeah, no. Of course it will. I doubt whether I will live to be able to see it, but it is. But it, it, the focus, you're right, it is on in, on the fuel aspect of it and also the um, seat and getting bums on seats and the utilisation of that. But if you look at aviation in itself as a totality, it's actually probably got worse over time because even simple things like this, right, going from Amsterdam to Mumbai, right, it's probably takes the same amount of time, maybe even more, given the congested routes that have, have now um, mushroomed over time. It probably takes longer to get there, and um, whereas it should be significantly less than what it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and so forth. So focus more on that so that your people are able to, to travel more often, more frequent, um, but not just for the sake of traveling. And I think this is your point you're making. The more... Tra traveling helps drive more education. It helps us adapt to more different cultures and styles, and it's more enriching and um, for a more fulfilled kind of lifestyle. And it would, over time as well, it would eradicate things like warfare and alienation and racism um, and all those negative things that have plagued us for for, for um, such a long I tell time. You, I tell you one thing, you know, jumping back to education, one thing which I would do, I would fund every 16-year-old and every 18-year-old to take time abroad will pay you. Yeah. The only thing is you, you can't go to um, first world countries. Yeah. So yeah. you you need to go to somewhere that's that, that you wouldn't normally visit. So, you know, we're going to pay you, but you, we're going to pay your flight. We're going to pay you accommodation and we're going to pay your living costs. The only thing is you have to go and contribute. Yeah. Now imagine Imagine that we have these, you know, huge numbers of 16-year-olds that are being sent around the world with the job of, your job is to learn, it's to embrace diversity and it's to contribute. You can do what you want. Yeah. Um, what you'd see if that was funded is you'd see countries start to evolve to be able to welcome and embrace those. Why? Because there's money attached to this. But you know, you start to say, I, you know, at 16, you can spend a month in um, one of 50 or 100 countries. We will work with those countries to provide programs that give you experience of those countries. It might be you're digging a ditch, digging a well. You're helping out in a healthcare centre. You know, the point is that you're going to experience something different. Yeah. So now, not every one of those will be successful. But imagine, you know, maybe maybe you allow people to ask for it. It's open if you want it. 18-year-old, yeah. you've done a degree, you've done a, a qualification in, um, you've learned your science. What about we, we would fund you for three months to go and help out and learn about um, the Amazon in the rainforest. Yeah. You can go and work on a project there. 
And the point is, we're um, we're doing we're trying to do this at an international level. Yeah. So you're not going to be with Brits. You're going to be with people from other countries that you yeah. can't speak their language. This is this is how we start to solve the problems. Yeah. We embrace diversity and difference. Yeah. We don't have you know, you know we look at the cliches we we have, you know, um, Brits go over and they'll spend some time in America. Americans will spend some time in Europe. You know, is learning Paris. No, that's yeah. that's not you learn yeah. about Europe. You want to learn about Europe? Go and grab a rucksack and travel around. Yeah, you know, fun that. Yeah, you know, I want to go. You know, you're a, you're a Brit, right? What do you want to do? What do you want to use your eighteen? You're eighteen. You've got your government grant. What do you want to use it for? Okay, well, I want to buy an interrail ticket so I can travel around. Okay, where's the contribution? Uh, I don't know. Okay, think about how you can contribute. What are you going to do? Um, I want to, uh, I want to help out a ski resort. Okay. That's fine. Yeah. Help out a ski resort. You're going to learn, you're going to do something different. You know, can you go to the Switzerland? No, you can't go to a Swiss resort. <laughs> go to Bulgaria, go to Romania, go to Russia, go to a ski resort. That's, that's not a first world place. Go yeah. and learn, go and contribute. What you will see, if we started to fund this. What you would see is, first of all, it would remove the privilege of what we see today of, um, you know, rich parents being able to build these incredible CVs to to walk through their careers. Um, it, it would level that up. But, you you know, you'd have a lot of people who would start to experience other cultures, who would start to, you know, find things, find things out about themselves and other people. Yeah. You know, I think it, it's about... You know, we we look at education. That's what it should be. Ed- education is not what's in the book. Yeah. You know, and I think we've lost some of yeah. that. Yeah. It right. is. You know, yeah. think if we want, you know, perhaps we say, well, you know, you know, years ago I did the the Duke of Edinburgh scheme, so you can start to, you know, you can go on your expedition, and you'll do your um, service in society. Maybe we should start to expand that. So. When we get to 21 and we look at what success is, success isn't, um, you know, a first in engineering from Cambridge. It's instead a, a record of what you've achieved in a whole range of areas yeah. that you've volunteered, yeah. that you've helped out. Yeah. What did you contribute you've taught, to? Yeah. Exactly. Contributed. And may, you know, and that's how we start to value. Yeah. And I think the point, the whole point of this is that that's already there but it's not equally accessible. Um, and I think what the whole point of this is saying, we can't make, we can't make um, society equal overnight. That's, that's not the goal. What the goal is, is for as long as we can, and certainly till our early 20s, we're just trying to level the playing field yeah. by raising it up for everybody. It's not, it's not about stopping people doing things, because if you want to go to a private school, that's fine. If you want to have, um, you know, if you can be funded to go and work in, you know, a, a place for three months because you don't need to worry about money, that's that's fine as well. The difference is that we're going to make that available to other people as well. So we're not denying choice. If you want to go through the private system, that's fine. What we want to do is make the public system as good that perhaps the private system isn't the only way that you can start to get into jobs. I think... And a final point, I think the other point is then to then to start to have a, a really serious debate, a really serious discussion about what diversity means in countries. 
And that means that employers, governments, education systems really need to look at broadening what they do. You know, a lot of the rules that are in there today, they're, they're not they're not fair at all. And we need to go, how do we start to make this open to everybody based on merit, not not based on privilege? Yeah. And this isn't a is it it isn't a hippie thing at all. And it's not about um damning those who've who've the ability to pay for this. It's not. It's about saying that what we want to do is have a fair playing field so everybody can achieve what they want to achieve. You know, not that it's open to the 7% and go to the private school. That's You can still do that. What we do, what we want to do, though, is have organisations recognise that, that the view of what they look at should be the 100% of what's available. And we start to have, we start to raise the discussion that, we do start to look at the value of people as a whole and what they bring to the organization. I think that's, and, you know, as yeah. we started with, you know, this, this ultimately comes back to respecting humans. When you do that, it, you can't respect humans without respecting diversity. So if you want to respect people, you have to respect the difference of people. And I think when you start to do that, that's how you fix the problems. A human first society equates to the age of creativity. Creativity exists within every single person, not the elite few. More often than not, they are ordinary people who do extraordinary things. It is not just relevant to the creative arts. It applies to every profession and domain and is found in all aspects of life. Nor is it something you ever lose with age, because ultimately you should be gaining more knowledge and insight over time as you experience more of life through living, exploring, traveling, experiencing, learning, and growing. And this provides us more reference points from past experiences and knowledge gained to develop something novel and viable. That does not mean being less creative. It means staying true to our childlike wonder and imagination and combining that with experience and insight. Forbid the cynicism of personal failure because it will trump you if you allow it to. And this can be kryptonite for the soul and can crush your energy, imagination and ultimately creativity. Flush the stereotypes from your perception that you need to be able to be in the creative arts and be able to paint a masterpiece like Dali and Picasso or have an abnormality deficiency such as severing your ear like Van Gogh or having to be deaf like Beethoven to compose a musical masterpiece. I love the point about challenging the stereotypes. Yeah. Because we, you know, we have this view that creativity is, is if we go, well, point to the creative person, what's the creative job? Yeah, what, yeah. So, and we'll go to the artist or the sculptor. Yeah. We, we, we don't look at the, the biochemist. We don't look at the, um, the engineer, the bridge engineer. Yeah. We don't look at the um, process designer <laughs> exactly. for logistics. Yeah. And I think, again, this is, this is a really big shift and actually starting to challenge some of the behaviors that I, I think is, is sadly a norm in a lot of education that we do fall into these stereotype behaviors and messages, you know, and when we say, I mean, you know, there's so much research showing that we embed biases 
really early into um, education, you know, stereotypes around roles, stereotypes around skills, stereotypes around jobs. We need to recognize these and start to challenge and bat them down. Yeah. You know, so instead of a, a student, a child should not be able to go through and believe that they are not creative. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> they might be producing stuff which, you know, I don't want to buy. You know, I'm not <laughs> saying it's going to be great. You know, is that a sculptor? Is that piece of sculpture fantastic? No, it, it's, it's, it's abomination. Okay. It's really ugly. That's my view. I'm not, I'm not. A, and what we do is we need to reframe this and to go, do what you enjoy. Do you enjoy sculpting? Do you enjoy painting? Well, do it. Yeah. Let's understand how we make you harness that passion. Let's give you the tools so you can do that, but not judge this. And one of the other things you said, which, which I loved was about embracing failure. So I do a, I do a three year degree by the third year. I'm, I'm, I'm really not loving it. I'm I want to finish the degree because I want the degree. Yeah. I want I now want to change. Oh, that's a waste of money, a waste of time, isn't it? That's you know, that's failure. Oh, I've I've dropped out of the I've dropped out of this course. Failure. No. We need to flip this around. What you've done is you've done some you've learned in that discipline. You've benefited from learning about that. You've understood that that's not something you enjoy. That's not something that fires you up. That's not something that drives passion within you. That's a great outcome. You know, so, you know, you know, Roy, I'm a, I'm a judo coach. So one of the phrases that we have in that one, the phrases that we will tell students again and again. So remember judo in a judo contest, there are two people. There is for the most part, going to be one winner. Let's forget draws in certain competitions. There's going to be a winner and a loser. Roughly 50% of the time, the odds are you're going to lose. Now, those odds will change over time. You're going to lose. Now, if you have the mindset that winning is important, you are going to fail to stay at this. You will not stay at the sport. So how do we keep students in, in, in a sport where 50% of the time, at least you're going to fail, maybe 90% of the time, yeah. early days, maybe a hundred percent, you know, the first few times you come on, you're going to, you're going to lose every competition. How do we do this? We change the mindset. You don't win or lose. You win or learn. Yeah, that's exactly. And right. this is massive. And, and this is one of the reasons I think why, you know, Martial arts are very good, not at just giving fitness, but also building really good positive mindsets. Because you, the whole point is about embracing adversity, embracing losing, embracing the fact that the outcome didn't go what you, in, in the way that you wanted, and learning from this. So you have a hard fight, you give everything, you know, and the score isn't yours. Well done, good. You've learned. You're now better placed to go forward. But I lost. Absolutely. Did you give everything? Yeah. And I still lost. Fantastic. So let's work on that. Let's understand what you need to do. So it always has to become a positive. It should be the same with education. So I I, I don't, you know, I hate physics. I don't want to do physics. Okay. Okay. Why? I don't enjoy it. That's the main reason you go forward then. Okay, so let's look at what you do want to do. Yeah, we have people in jobs that they don't enjoy. And what would, imagine what the happiness would be. You know, so, you know, Gary, the prime minister again. Yeah, I've, I've 
gone to the universities and said, oh, you know, it's going to cost a lot, but you know, if anything, COVID has shown us we can. COVID has shown us we can find money if something really matters. So maybe we find it for something that's not an emergency, but something that's a high priority: education. So we say what we're going to do is we're going to allow people to learn to to start to come back to university, go back to education, and they're not going to be burdened with a cost. So anybody can go to start to learn anything, and there is a pathway. Regardless of where you are in life, there is a pathway that you can get there. Now, you know, one of the things I tell my kids and tell young people that, you know, they think there's only one path. There isn't. There's there's a path that is easier than others. So if you go through the traditional path of 14, 16, you know, GCSEs, A-levels, degree, that that's that's one path. It's not the only path. So Imagine that we started to say, right, what we're going to do over the next five years within the length of a parliament or four years in the length of presidency, we're going to do two things. We're going to make education free. We're going to make education accessible. But what does that mean? Well, it means you can go and study and wherever you are at your point in life, there is a route. Now, that route in some cases is going to be really long. You know, if you come out of school with no qualifications, you want to become an architect that's good. There's a lot of learning to do. That route's open. Well, I, I came out of school without English and maths. You're saying I can become an architect. I'm saying that route is open to you. Yeah. Now that means you, you are going to have to learn English and maths. You're going to have to go through some science, but that may take you 10 years of part-time study, but that route is open to you. So imagine what that means at a societal level. Anyone has the potential. That's not saying they will, but the route is open for anybody to become anything they want to do if they're prepared to put the work in and the country will support you to do that. That's that's very different to where we are. Totally. Now, that's going to have a big cost, but let's flip this around. How many people are in jobs that they just don't enjoy? Exactly. That they don't. The world is moving on and we're not allowing people to adapt as fast as the world needs them to. So what we do is we say, look, we have no idea the world's going to go. Um, we know that technology is going to become more advanced. We know that AI is going to bring thinking and um, analysis, embedding it into a whole range of jobs. You know, and this isn't just going to be, you know, uh, blue collar jobs. It's going to impact a lot of white collar and actually a lot of uh, top jobs as well. You know, we're going to see more analytics in, in uh, healthcare. We're going to see more in um, science. So it's not only going to impact, you know, a lot of lower, lower earning jobs. It's going to make a lot of other jobs. So embrace this and use this as an opportunity to invent. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>